From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. The California State University system has decided its classes will be online this fall. It's the first big system in higher education to announce its plans. We'll talk with Chancellor Timothy White about why the Cal States won't be having students back on campus later this year. Our daily COVID-19 medical update is with UC San Francisco professor and infectious disease specialist, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. He'll take our questions. And we'll hear how listeners are handling peer pressure and feelings of missing out when seeing others close to them getting together in person, whether in the office or socially. It's Air Talk right after NPR News. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So glad to have you with us today. We have a lot to talk about. A little bit later this hour, Dr. Peter Chin Hong joins us once more from UC San Francisco, where he's infectious disease specialist and professor at the medical center there. We'll bring you our daily COVID-19 medical update, including your questions of Dr. Chin Hong. But we're very pleased to have with us this morning the chancellor of the California State University System, Dr. Timothy White, who announced yesterday that what is the nation's largest four-year university system will, for the most part, not have in-person classes for the fall semester. Chancellor White, thank you very much for joining us today. Happy to be with you again, Larry. Thank you. And about uh, that retirement of yours, um, I guess that'll be put off a little bit. <laughs> my goodness. You know, I, I had planned to leave on my on July 4th. My would be my Independence Day, but... Uh, I'm going to, this is a beloved university and such an important enterprise for the state of California that I wanted to stay through the beginning of our leadership and management of this remarkable historic uh, moment for us. Let's talk about what fed into the decision to, with just a few exceptions, to have uh, classes continue online in the fall. Uh, What were the most prominent uh, reasons behind that? Well, I'm glad you you said what you said, because we we do remain open and classes are not canceled. It'll just be different in some ways, but not always. And and we remain committed to our our inclusive excellence approach to to meet the needs of our students uh, uh, next next academic year. But at the top of the list is the health and well-being of our students and employees. Um, We're using science and data and the expert advice of epidemiologists and infectious disease practitioners and our public health officials and government leaders. And we're announcing the planning horizon. And I want to emphasize planning horizon now to get the greatest amount of flexibility and time to prepare, not only for our students and their families, but also vitally important for our professional development and training of faculty, of the folks that provide academic support uh, and student support, because this is just a change of venue, if you will. And we want it to be a very engaged and enriched environment for those courses that have to be done virtually. Um, there will be exceptions uh, for in-person activities that can't be done virtually, but they will be different. Um, 
take a, 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 a teaching of our nurses. You know, we produce over half the nurses in California. They need access to the mannequins for their simulations to get their clinical skills up. Well, instead of having 15 or 20 students in one of those sessions in the fall, it's going to be five. And in between every student, it's going to have to be uh, the mannequin is going to have to be disinfected, right? So the approach will be different. The experience will be different. But we also want to make sure that we um, uh, do the same for students in life sciences laboratories or phys physical science laboratories, the students in agriculture and engineering who have must have hands-on experiences, uh, architecture, et cetera. But it has to be done without any violation of the health and safety of our students. And so by doing things virtually that lend themselves, which will be the majority of our instructional activity, don't get me wrong, it will vary across the campuses because uh, what's going on in Arcata uh, uh, for Humboldt State University in terms of the disease progression is different than what it is for the campuses that are in the LA basin or in San Diego or the Bay Area. Um, so there's going to be variability across the 23 campuses as well, and that's an important point to note. We're talking with the Chancellor of the California State University System, Tim White. And if you have questions for Chancellor White, uh, I'd be glad to ask them on your behalf. You can call 866-893-KPCC. You can also ask questions on our AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can tweet at AirTalk or post on the AirTalk Facebook page. And we'll be glad to uh, to pass uh, some of those questions on. You know, Some of the professions that you're talking about nursing and, and some of the others require uh, practicum with internships and externships and the like. But for many of those organizations, they're not taking new people to do that. So how, how are you going to deal with that when graduation often depends on fulfilling those kinds of practical parts of the coursework? Well, that's very true. I mean, when you think about it, uh, from the, take the, the nurses, for example, we, we had to petition to allow, uh, normally we're able for the clinical practice for nurses to have up to 25% of their clinical training to be done uh, through simulation on mannequins. And we had to petition and work hard to get that to increase to 50%. And, and the result of that is going to be several thousand more students finishing their clinical experiences on simulated mannequins and entering the workforce uh, this summer and fall much for the good of California's healthcare uh, workforce. Um, likewise, for example, um, at the Cal Maritime uh, uh, campus up in Vallejo, you know, students need access to the blue water hands-on interactive simulator for boat and ship handling to give them the skills and knowledge and understanding to enter into the maritime industry. And it's required for licensure by the U.S. Coast Guard and the United Nations International Maritime Organization. So why is that important? Well, you know, the, the, the homeland security issues up and down the, the West Coast, uh, the commerce that comes through the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, these are all Cal State graduates that are doing all that stuff. So how do you make up for that? If, if that's not available, if, is there any way at all that the university can provide a comparable experience? Well, so, so in those cases when we cannot find a comparable experience virtually, then we have to do it in person with all of the protective gear, all of the decreased density of people in the space, so masks, gloves, face masks, long sleeves, uh, gowns, et cetera. So if you're working in, if the disease is prevalent 
And so the testing on a campus, uh, the tracing on a campus, uh, the ability to have students living only one person per residence hall room instead of three or four stuffed in there, all of those changes will have to be made in order to do those limited in-person things that are obligatory and necessary for the economy and society of California to whom we serve. We're talking with the Chancellor of the California State University System, Timothy White. We're at 866-893-KPCC. Carlos in Whittier asks, what about student fees, since students aren't going to be using the facilities uh, as they have before? Yeah, so our tuition and mandatory uh, fees will remain. Uh, We are keeping our employees. Uh, The faculty will be working. They may be working remotely. Uh, the staff do, do the support and do the business operations will be working, some on campus and some remotely. So our cost uh, drivers aren't going down. In fact, they're actually going up with respect to um, uh, the cost of delivery with the added technology we need to purchase, the added training we need to do, et cetera. The, the fees that are charged for uh, things such as living in a residence hall, if you're not living in a residence hall, you don't pay the fee. If you don't park a car, you don't pick the parking fee. If you don't you know, use any food service, which is still a work in progress, you don't pay for that. So those fees will go away as they have this year uh, when we decanted the campuses uh, um, you know, six weeks ago and finished out the term uh, virtually. Christopher in Westwood asks, uh, what about fall sports? Wondering about football for uh, the Cal States that have it like San Jose State and and uh, a few of the others, Fresno State, of course, with, with big programs, uh, and all the other sports, are, are they going to be uh, sidelined? You know, that remains a work in progress. Each of our, our, our universities compete at various levels, the Division I levels, the Fresno State, the San Diego States, San Jose's of the world, but there's also a variety of Division II schools that play uh, 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 sports as well, intercollegiate athletics. And then there are some who aren't even in the NC2A. Um, so those that are in conferences, the Mountain West, the Big West, et cetera, there are conference conversations of how's going on uh, across the country. Many of our sports, intercollegiate athletics are national in scope. And so the NC2A is involved in how do we sort of create, um, you know, what are the health and safety considerations, first and foremost, and then what kind of seasons might there be? Uh, so that's all a work in progress. And, um, and I think that's the right way to go. But, you know, we can't open up a university just for intercollegiate athletics and not for academics. And so uh, I think as long as we're able to do uh, to do both in, in some way, shape or form, uh, we will know more about that in the weeks and months ahead. Have, have your athletic directors, though, that are in the Mountain West Conference, for example, um, like San Diego State, Fresno State, have they have they um, been in contact with the conference to talk with them about that? Your your um, uh, or even some of your Big West schools to talk with that conference. And uh, uh, so, you know, did, did they see this coming? They saw it coming. They are on a daily basis talking about there. There's contracts uh, with uh, television and media. There are guarantees for playing certain teams at certain times. Uh, there's the issue of travel uh, with a decreased airline industry. I mean, there's all sorts of things there, there that, that would be another four hours on your on your show. Uh, are some of our Division II schools, like Chico, the, they're in the CCAA conference, 
and they've decided to cancel uh, fall sports. Okay, the whole conference, or just Chico State? Uh, all of the schools in the CCAA. And- the whole conference, okay. All right. Uh, Ruth in Santa Ana says, what are the plans for incoming freshmen? Uh, what will remain the same for them as they transition into school, and what will be different for this class of incoming freshmen? A, a terrific question. Um, we want our new students to come. We want our returning students to continue, and enrollments are looking strong for the fall as we speak today. Um, but, you know, depending on which campus they're going and what program they're in, the campuses will be now communicating directly with those students about what that individual campus's approach is going to be. But I think everybody needs to re- realize that there will be much more done virtually than there will be done in person. Um, but it is not a time uh, to to stock out. Um, it is really a, a time uh, for uh, students to lean in and take advantage of the moment. Uh, we're working very hard to perfect remote instruction and build virtual communities. It won't be the same, but it will be very good, and it'll enable students to maintain their academic progress and momentum towards a degree that will be transformative for their lifetime, personally and economically. It's not the time to pause in education, and we cannot emphasize that too strongly. Uh, Sort of anticipating the next thing I was going to ask you from Norma in Lakewood, who writes on the AirTalk page, my son says he's not learning anything, so he wants to drop out. Will students be able to take a pause? And I believe Norma's son is at Cal State Long Beach. Well, I would suggest uh, her, her son contact the department chair and express his concerns of what's not working, uh, because I hear exactly the opposite uh, as well. And so there's, there's something technically wrong or is are people not fulfilling their commitment? But it also underscores, Larry, the reason for making this planning horizon known today is I do want our faculty and staff uh, to be able to train and learn how to be more effective in the virtual space over the course of the next three or four months. So when fall gets here, uh, it is really uh, terrifically well executed. Olivia writes on the page, what plans does Cal State have for maintaining academic integrity? Will no failing grades still be in effect for the future semesters? Uh, There's a a lot of uh, folks working on the issue of academic integrity. Uh, There are technological ways of doing this. you know, it's always an issue in, in, in education where some people uh, choose to try and, and get around actually doing the work. Uh, but there will be plenty of safe mark, uh, safety uh, issues in place to assure ourselves with the highest degree of confidence possible that this is authentic learning being done by the students that we are enrolling. Uh, Alonzo tweets at AirTalk, how are student services moving forward to ensure they continue to support students academically? And are CSU faculty going to make themselves available virtually? Uh, Yes and yes. I mean, we've never closed our health centers or our financial aid offices. Uh, We do actually do some uh, in-person visits uh, uh, based on appointment, but we're also getting much better at telehealth and telefinancial aid. And uh, the, the cultural communities that, that have cultural centers, uh, the veterans groups that, that uh, create a place for veteran students to be, it's just taking it from a physical space into the virtual space. And quite frankly, I think our students today are, are much more comfortable uh, with virtual connections uh, 
through technology, cell phones, iPads, et cetera, than some of the folks of my vintage who didn't grow up with that technology and are learning it as we speak uh, in order to be more comfortable and fluent in the virtual space. But we are absolutely committed to a vibrant uh, learning experience with all of the support there for different communities uh, of students uh, and to give them the support, the encouragement, and the advice, uh, the challenge uh, uh, to succeed, uh, but to succeed and, and learn uh, as we work our way over the next, you know, and it's not a problem just for the fall, Larry. You know this. Uh, let me just quickly slide two more questions because I know you have to run. Arnell and Windsor Hills, uh, students who are attending on athletic scholarships, are those scholarships still in force if they're attending school but not able to play sports? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And Mike in Woodland Hills says, my daughter was admitted for the fall, but she's adamant she doesn't want to do virtual school. How are students looking to defer being treated? Uh, I think when you're admitted, you have to make a decision. Are you coming or not? Um, there will be interactions with her and her campus. If she chooses not to come, I would ask her to rethink that decision. Um, she can get started on her general education requirements and get started on that progress to degree. And then when we're able to re fully repopulate the campuses uh, in the future, she'll be on her way to a degree. Dr. White, thank you so much for spending this time with us this morning. And we hope we can check in with you in the next few weeks to get an update as some of these other aspects of the fall start of the term are, are uh, decided. Thank you again. Thank you, Larry. Uh, that's Dr. Timothy White, Chancellor of the California State University System, the largest four-year system in higher education in the United States. Coming up, we'll talk uh, with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist and frequent AirTalk guest, part of our lineup of daily COVID-19 medical experts. And we'll take your questions about the coronavirus in one minute on AirTalk. Kudos, by the way, on the terrific questions that we had for Chancellor Timothy White of the California State University System. I, I so appreciate uh, the thoughtfulness uh, and and the breadth of those questions. And you know, it's a real privilege on this program to be able to bring in leaders throughout the state of California nationally to answer our questions in this time where so much is in flux. Higher education, just a prime example of that. We don't know yet what the University of California is going to be deciding about uh, its fall term. But we're very pleased to have with us from University of California, San Francisco Medical Center, professor of medicine and infectious disease specialist, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. Dr. Chin Hong, welcome back. So good to have you with us. My pleasure, Larry. Always great to be in this audience. So uh, let's talk, uh, first of all, about what's going on at your medical center. Uh, we've been hearing throughout much of California that um, even with the plateau in the number of, of, of um, hospital admissions and the like, hospitals are still um, handling the capacity okay and are starting to ramp up on scheduled surgeries and some elective surgeries. Similar thing at UCSF? Yes, definitely. We're trying to get back to, quote-unquote, the normal life as we know it. And we always wondered where all the patients went during COVID. And hopefully with some outreach and reassuring patients that 
the hospital is actually a safer environment that we can get back some of those patients to come in. One of the concerns I know is that there's going to be a lot of um, delayed treatment. People who have deferred seeing a physician out of fears of being exposed to COVID-19 or maybe uh, limited ability to connect with their physicians. Do you anticipate that hospitals like yours uh, and doctor's offices generally are are at some point going to start seeing a rush of patients? Yeah, so we've been all calling that the second wave, and we anticipate that there will be patients who have deferred care and uh, probably will have more advanced disease in some senses with some of these chronic conditions. And we're a little bit worried about that, but I think we're all up for sort of engaging with them and having them reincorporate into care once again. Uh, we just had the news conferences we do each day uh, from uh, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who said his state is investigating, um, I think it's around 150 cases of children with a mysterious inflammatory syndrome thought to be related to COVID-19. It affects blood vessels and organs as symptoms similar to what's called Kawasaki disease and toxic shock syndrome. Three children have died in New York State. Um, what's your sense of, of, of what uh, could be happening in those cases? Yeah, so it's a very interesting and developing phenomenon. Um, I'll give you a few thoughts that I had. It's called, it has this name or moniker now of Pediatric Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome or PMIS, but it's thought really to be due to a reaction that the immune system has after the virus is gone. So actually when they, you look for virus in these kids, and it's not something new, it's actually been seen in Europe, but not as much in Asia, interestingly. But when, it, when the COVID epidemic came through Europe, they were seeing cases in Spain and in the UK in particular, and that was a harbinger of what was eventually going to be seen in New York. Of course, with a larger population, there are more cases being seen in New York, and I think all these centers are collaborating now to try to understand. And there is a, some homology with, with this Kawasaki's disease uh, that you had mentioned. Um, we have all these sorts of aspects to COVID-19 that we hadn't expected, some of which at least hadn't been reported out of China, uh, or maybe we hadn't seen evidence in Europe with the severe outbreaks there, such as in northern Italy. Um, what's your sense of what's going on with this, and how does it relate to some of our you know, previous um, viruses, you know, looking at SARS or Ebola? It, is this one becoming more diverse in the symptoms than some of the others to which it's been compared? Yes, definitely. I think, you know, from the beginning of COVID-19, we've all kept an open mind. And even uh, Dr. Fauci, when he was speaking at the Senate yesterday, speak, spoke about, you know, being very humbled by this virus. And I think that continues to be the case. Um, I think, for, you know, one of the points is that unlike SARS and MERS, COVID-19 is very, very global. It's a pandemic. And because you have a lot more people infected, you're probably going to see weird sequelae of disease when you didn't really see it in these other two coronaviruses. So this pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome is one of them. COVID-2 is another. They're very similar because it's not really an acute viral infection. When you look for virus, you can't find it. But it's likely something that happened after the virus is long gone, and then you're having the body 
uh, react in this certain uh, strange way. And is this a case where um, an immunosuppressant might be helpful in avoiding these uh, reactions after one has the virus? Yeah, so I think that's why, and the CDC may come out with specific guidance soon, but I think the the talk amongst my pediatric colleagues and amongst other infectious disease docs is that they want parents to be a little bit more uh, uh, observant because I think what we're seeing right now is, of course, the tip of the iceberg. They're probably a spectrum of disease of kids who are probably not that sick, who probably have a fever and a rash, and it probably goes away. But I think by identifying all of the spectrum, we can have a better understanding of what this syndrome is really about. Our line's open for you to talk with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, UCSF Medical Center, professor of medicine and infectious disease specialist. We're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Tweet at AirTalk or visit the AirTalk Facebook page. You can also add a comment or message us there, 866-893-KPCC. CC. Uh, here in Los Angeles uh, today, the county beaches opening for active use for the first time. Bike paths uh, remain closed, the piers and the like. But for people who want to surf, want to swim, want to run on the beach, walk on the beach, they can use it actively like that. Um, and they're going to have to, of course, maintain social distance while doing that. Dr. Chin Hong, what, what's your thoughts of the comparative risk of, of those activities? I think it's really, it's probably okay in different settings. And of course, in Northern California, our beaches were open recently for people to that, do that kind of recreation. So just going to our beaches over the weekend, you know, again, mainly hiking or walking. I noticed a lot of people wearing masks. People are trying to stay socially distant from each other. And, you know, if you have a narrow pathway and people have to pass, it's just very transient. And I noticed people very, being very courteous. So they would wait probably in a little uh, part so that you would be not up and close and personal with them, even though most people are wearing masks. So I think if people are responsible about it, I know people are being uh, very, you know, having that sense of yearning for the outside, especially given the better weather, although it's still a little bit foggy here today and where I am sitting. But, you know, I think knowing about what you can do to protect yourself and others um, will make it okay, you know, if we all observe that. And again, I think duration of exposure is another issue. So if you're sitting on the beach, crowded, a crowded beach, closed and jammed, packed with other people for a long period of time, that's very different from walking and on the beach, you know, with the air blowing by and you only transiently closer to someone while wearing a mask. And it would seem that's borne out statistically, wouldn't it? Because when you look at where the, the highest numbers of the infections are coming from, they're from uh, senior living or nursing facilities, they're from factories where people all day are in very close proximity with other people, they're in prisons, they're in these institutional settings where, where you know, there's, there's um, not a lot of uh, distance between people. Yes, definitely. And the duration is something people don't always think about, too. For example, people always ask me, you know, what if I, if a runner passes me by? And there's some evidence, of course, that runners, when they exhale, they can potentially spread virus, virus fragments a little bit further. 
And my answer to them is only is that it's a really transient risk, and as the the distance from the runner's breath uh, becomes larger, that's actually going to be very negligible. And for a brief transient period, when someone's passing you, that's really negligible. But if you have the person running around you in circles and shouting at you at the same time while running, that's very different. Yeah, you don't want to be in a pack in a marathon, obviously. Um, that wouldn't be good. Michael in Chatsworth says, with all the problems at the meat packing plants, is there a risk the virus could get into the meat supply? Um, that's a great question. Um, so far, we haven't really seen too much foodborne transmission. There has been some... Um, you know, people can have diarrhea as part of COVID-19, but it's really rare in the order of less than 20%. I know in, in some parts in Asia during Chinese or Lunar New Year, there were some mini outbreaks when people took their masks off to eat and they were sharing like hot pots. And I'd probably mentioned that before in this uh, um, radio show. But apart from that, it's not really been a thing. And probably the most favorite way for COVID to get from one person to the next is still through the traditional route of droplets. Eduardo in Montebello says, are there different variations of the virus between the East and West Coast? Uh, is it a more aggressive virus in New York than here in California? That's a great question, too. There's some um, emerging evidence that the virus on the East Coast, which is more like Europe, uh, is a little bit more transmissible, but not more deadly. So it's probably, some people think it's easier to spread, but it's not more deadly if you get it. But so I think overall, my bottom line about COVID, it's the same virus overall. So that's why I think the vaccine uh, progress is still on track because they don't have to like shift gears and make a new kind of vaccine for a mutated virus. One of the things I think uh, many people are grappling with is is trying to determine what is, and I know this is kind of a cold term, and I don't mean it to sound this way, but what is an acceptable rate of COVID spread as businesses start to reopen, and what do we consider just intolerable that we can't, uh, is a death rate or, or a rate of infection we just simply can't abide? And you know, how, what sort of a conversation, Dr. Chinhong, do you think we should be having about that? I mean, the idea that you're going to get to zero COVID deaths before you reopen things isn't realistic. So how do we how do we grapple with this? I think that's a really, really tough question, Larry, because it really gets to the heart of how you prioritize things. I think as a medical professional, I'm a little bit biased because I prioritize human life generally. So it's really difficult for me to have that conversation of pros and cons of lives versus economy. So I think um, that's a tough discussion. But I think, above all, if we have two things in place, uh, we'll have that barometer and then society can help make that decision. But I feel like we don't even have those two things in place right now, which are the right amount of testing and the right workforce uh, right size fit to do contact tracing because those two things are our barometer of how we're doing in general and if we have a sensitive barometer we can make that determination as a society but um you know we know that uh, for economic loss there 
there is a mortality rate associated to that and health outcomes and and uh, other issues that people deal with when they lose their jobs, when um, they deal with the loss of in-person social contact. That, too, isn't, isn't a minor issue. And are there any models to take into account that uh, that health impact of the lockdown? Yeah, totally. And I've always been worried about that secondary effect or that bystander effect as I think about it, because it is uh, quality of life loss, lives lost because people didn't come into the hospital because things were shut down, they were afraid, lives lost because people have had depression or mental illness because they haven't seen loved ones, um, lives lost because of the mental and the sequelae of being in the hospital or being lonely. So I think all of those things have impact, even lives lost on people on the transplant list because they couldn't get transplants because the surgery was all shut down uh, for those kinds of things, particularly in surge cities. So there is definitely uh, some data still to be collected, but I feel it's, you know, people need to, you know, it'd be great if we had a dashboard and we can see all of these measures, but yeah. we're not really there yet. Dr. Chin Hong, as always, thank you so much for being with us. I look forward to talking with you, we hope, in the, a few days from now. And uh, please stay safe. Our best to all of you and your colleagues at UCSF. Thanks so much, Larry. Appreciate it. That's Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist, professor of medicine, UC San Francisco Medical Center. Every day, we bring you a medical update on COVID-19, including AirTalk listener questions, and try and get you the very latest on the science of COVID-19. Coming up, it's about the human aspect of staying at home. How do you cope with entreaties from coworkers, friends, family members, to get together or to come in, in the off to the office, whether it's peer pressure or whether it's fear of missing out. How do you navigate that when someone says, oh, we're getting together. Come on, join us. You need to be there. I know this is particularly a big issue for some of our younger listeners where there is significant pressure to actually get together face to face. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page kpcc.org back in 90 seconds. So great to hear John, too, a huge supporter of KPCC and AirTalk. Uh, in fact, the mask that I wear around here is one uh, that John and his wife supplied to us here at KPCC, which we appreciate his generosity so very much, as we appreciate you for being a faithful listener to AirTalk and throughout the day at kpcc.org if you listen online, the KPCC app, or 89.3. And we remind you as you're spending all this time at home that you can listen on your smart speaker, either Amazon or Google smart speaker or any other brand. Just tell it to play KPCC. Well, for many of us, we face pressure from family members, friends, or co-workers who are getting together, maybe in small groups or maybe in larger gatherings. And I know for younger listeners, this it's even more of a thing, you know, where um, there are social gatherings and people getting together at someone's apartment, someone's house, and maybe you feel that pressure to do it. So how do you deal with it? Are there times where you succumb to the pressure? You're just your fear of missing out on a fun event is just something you didn't you didn't feel you could do. And 
and so you took part. What about um, uh, with your employer as well? There are some particularly smaller companies I know where people are still going into the office. Maybe they're not distancing. Maybe they're not wearing masks in the office. You're working from home, but you feel a kind of... um, Uh, pressure, maybe not overt, but uh, an implied pressure that, you know, you'd be doing better to be in the office with everyone else. So I'd like to hear from you at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. How are you coping with these? Because my sense is that as we're now two months in to the stay-at-home order, that more and more people are starting to venture out and starting to get together, that families that haven't been in each other's presence, um, you know, beyond a small family unit are now starting uh, to meet up. This was an issue for Mother's Day, I know, in many families where people wanted to get together in person, not just have a FaceTime or Zoom gathering of family members to say hi to mom. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page kpcc.org and let us know how you're dealing with that. Um, Jill Replogle, our KPCC editor, said it's a big pressure in Orange County where Jill is. She said, I've had four people ask for play dates or for drinks in just the last couple of weeks. It makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, I. so how do you, how do you deal with it? Do you ever... Um, Agree to take part, even though you feel it's not in your best interest to do it? Or do you decide that um, you're just you're going to say no and risk being perceived as antisocial or being overly concerned about the spread of COVID-19? So I think you've got you've got a real cultural difference here. There are some people for whom it's a very front-of-mind issue, who are adhering to all uh, the uh, advice and public health directives to only go out for absolutely essential trips uh, to the supermarket when absolutely necessary, but minimizing those to uh, the drugstore when absolutely necessary, but minimizing that kind of of shopping and uh, trying to just hunker down with the unit of people that you live with on a daily basis. For others, they're seeing it as as just not that uh, high a likelihood that they're going to be exposed to COVID-19. Or perhaps for someone who's younger, that even if exposed, not so concerned that it's going to be life-threatening or or be something requiring hospitalization. So how do you deal with that if you're on one or the other side of that divide? 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. EGW writes on the page, Peer pressure to open up is rising, thankfully. I fly U.S. flags on my car. I have reopened California written on my windows. This frequently triggers conversations with other drivers. 30 days ago, it was mostly middle fingers and thumbs down. Now, it's more thumbs up. That's EGW writing on the AirTalk page at kpcc.org, 866-893-5722. Astrogoth writes, do you think young people have kind of made their peace with the loss of many elderly and unwell? See it as a cost of doing business. Um, that's kind of cold. I, you know, I, I, don't think, I don't think necessarily that's how younger people see it. But I do think if they're 
if they're not having contact with other people, if their whole life really revolves around contact with people who are under 50, then there may be a perception that uh, they're not going to give it to someone else, they're not going to be a carrier of COVID-19, and that they themselves are at little risk of it. You know, the problem is, if they're moving around out in the world, what are the odds they're not going to have some degree of contact with someone who is older or someone that they don't know has an underlying health condition? And with asymptomatic carrying of COVID-19, then the problem is you can be exposing other people and have no sense of it at all. I still hear many people say, oh, I feel fine. I feel great. I don't, as though that means there's no way they could be possibly spreading the virus. And of course, that's not true. We know that a very high percentage of people who uh, have been exposed to COVID-19 and would test positive for it, don't actually have any symptoms associated with it. 866-893-KPCC. And I'm particularly interested in hearing from younger AirTalk listeners. And I mean that generously. If you're under 30, that's what I mean by younger. Um, What do your peers think? And are many of them just seeing this as no risk for themselves and no risk of spreading it to someone else? Uh, Denise in downtown Los Angeles, how are you dealing with this? Oh, hi. Um, I feel like I'm confessing because I succumbed and I'm usually very cautious, but I could not stand not seeing my son anymore. So I put on a mask and I went over to see him on Cinco de Mayo and I played the numbers. I thought about him in my head and I thought, what are the chances? What are the odds? I knew it was a risk, but I couldn't stand being apart any longer. So I went there, wore the mask. Enjoyed the time, came home, held my breath for a couple days, and so far, so good. All right, Denise, that's good to hear. Now, for for your son, and and that is okay if you're keeping distance and you're masking, that is, uh, you know, that's a comparatively low-risk activity. Your your son, I don't know how old your son is, but is is he practicing the same sorts of um distancing and masking as you are or because he's younger is is he feeling less vulnerable well i can say because he's younger he's definitely feeling less vulnerable and it's interesting because i'm watching what all his peers are doing they chose to go back to their apartments even though ucla is doing online learning right now but they seem to have created these little bubbles where, you know, for example, his apartment and his neighbor's apartment, they're all kind of in that bubble and they're not bringing in too many people beyond that. All right. It's, it's like a little expansive bubble is what I would call it. And they seem to be pretty resourceful about it. Pretty resourceful. All right. Denise, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And you're always safe to confess here on Air Talk. 866-893-KPCC. We don't even require any penance. Just share with us your experience. 866-893-5722. And again, I'm particularly interested in hearing from younger listeners. If you have friends that are getting together... Uh, Are you feeling a kind of pressure to get together? Maybe you feel like it's really low risk to get together uh, with people in your age group. And are you doing that? 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. How are you coping with the fear of missing out with others who are gathering in person? How are you dealing with any peer pressure that might exist, whether it's from coworkers, friends, or family? We'll be back in one minute.
Coping with peer pressure, with people starting to get together in person, are you succumbing to the temptation because you just don't want to miss out, uh, or are you declining those invitations but but feeling bummed about it? You're missing a chance to get together with other people, but you know it's the right thing to do to protect your health and the health of others in your world. 866-893-KPCC. Or the air talk page, kpcc.org. John in Pacific Palisades, uh, how are you experiencing this? Well, I had a barbecue uh, the other day on the weekend, and I was, this is just something I did for my community, my slice of the community. Some people felt like, you know, some people who feel like they are just nervous and, you know, they, they don't want to spread, they, they just came and picked up their food, and others that felt like they, just needed a little bit more of a connection. I actually have this outdoor area. I set it up so people would be six feet apart. And if, if they wanted to stay and eat their food and have a drink, everyone stayed six feet apart and masked, and they were able to kind of get a little bit of, you know, human interaction uh, during this whole crisis. So, you know, I, I feel like there's there's got to be some middle ground, and I was just able to serve people kind of on both ends of that spectrum. Yeah, and you, and you felt like everybody was cool with the differing ways that they were comfortable with, with the event? Absolutely. I mean, again, people that were totally just, you know, kind of on one end of the spectrum with respect to having fear of COVID, they came by, they picked up their food, they were masked, and then they they took off. Okay. I just felt like they needed a little bit more, were able to stay a little longer, and and people were comfortable with that. John, I appreciate your sharing that experience. Thanks so much. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Rand in West Hollywood, how are you experiencing this? What degree of pressure? Hey, my degree of pressure. Uh, thanks for having me on. About yeah, that. sure. Um, yeah, me and my girlfriend live in a uh, very, very small studio apartment in uh, West Hollywood. And uh, we really want to, you know, do what we believe is right and abide by, um, you know, the professionals that our governments, um, you know, elect. And, um, you know, we don't want to uh, leave and uh, for any unnecessary trips. And that's been really hard because um, being in a relationship in a very small studio apartment, and you have friends all over West Hollywood willing to have these small gatherings and get together. Yeah. But we're very firm in the fact that, you know, we want to abide by these rules. Um, It's very, it's very uh, challenging uh, mentally. And do you and your girlfriend ever disagree on that? Or are you closely aligned on that, that, you're not going to get together with people. Yeah, we're closely aligned that we're not going to get together with people. Okay, so that's good. So there's not conflict within your relationship over that. But are your friends understanding when they try and get you to come over and hang out with them? Oh, absolutely. They they understand. And yeah. um, some of them, at least. Um, uh, you know, I've had some conversations with uh, some people, um, family of my girlfriends that uh, essentially, you know, you know, think that, you know, this is like a pandemic type thing and that, that, you know, they should be able to, you know, go back out in the world and, uh, 
um, that's not we, what we believe at all. You know, we're we're listening to the professionals, and you know, we want to stay in. We want sure. to be. We don't want anyone at risk. Well, and it's great that, you know, your friends are accepting of that and, and not, you know, judging you negatively for taking the professional advice and keeping yourselves and others you contact safe. Rand, thank you very much. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Our producer, Lindsay, says, most of my close friends continue to keep distance, but people in my apartment building are hanging out a lot. Sadly, I... I just kind of avoid them. I do feel a little left out, but I'm not comfortable with the idea of hanging out in close quarters yet. That's our producer, uh, Lindsay. Uh, our producer, Matt, said, um, my friends are all taking it very seriously, some of them more seriously than the older folks in my life. That's interesting. Uh, my wife's parents, for example, they're over it. They're sick of not seeing their grandkids. They're starting to talk about organizing gatherings. Meanwhile, the group thread I'm in with my friends around the same age as me, constantly being updated with headlines and COVID talk, almost to the point where it's too much, especially for someone who works in news. I bet, Matt. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Let's talk with Sarah in San Marino. Sarah, I understand you're in your mid-20s. What's going on with your peer group? Okay, my peer group does not seem to be taking this very seriously. Like, I have three-fourths of the people that I know who are having parties. I was speaking to one yesterday. She said she was having a party tomorrow and that her neighbors have been having parties all week. And I just expressed that that's really disappointing to me. I don't think it's the time we should be doing this, and I think it's much too early, and I haven't seen, like, a really serious um, response from a, a lot of the people my age it's actually kind of frightening. Yeah, and so you must, to some degree, feel left out, even though you're confident in your decision. Yeah, I absolutely do, but um, it just is, it's too important to me to be safe. It's more important for me to be safe and to protect other people and including my friends. So that means that, you know, I do my own distancing and I'm not going to take part in those activities right now or even for the next couple months, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Sarah, thank you. I really appreciate your being with us. Maddie in South Los Angeles. Uh, Maddie, where are you feeling the pressure? So I'm feeling the pressure mainly from my desire to help local businesses and the people who I've been supporting for years. One of the main things is that I want to really badly want to get a haircut. Um, My stylist is actually opening up her shop again in the next week. However, my concern is, you know, are, are they pressured to reopen? Are they actually wanting to reopen? And by reopening, obviously, they they might not be getting the same kind of federal or local support that they need to get. So is my money really even more important now? And how should I kind of balance that with the need for being safe and quarantining? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a lot to consider. And haircut's a prime example because um, my sense is a lot of people are getting haircuts just, you know, underground, so to speak. Uh, and that stylists to try and, and, you know, get some money in are going to people's houses. They're seeing people, you know, quietly. Um, not all, certainly, but some are doing that. And um, it's it's really tough because, as you say, you want to support people in the work that they're doing, recognize the value of it. Plus, I'm sure you want to get a haircut, as I certainly do. I haven't had this much hair in 30 years. 
Maddie, I wish you the best as you work through those decisions. Let me quickly share some others. Charlie in Woodland Hills says she went to visit her mother in Brentwood. Her mom refused to wear a mask, so Charlie wouldn't get out of the car. She had her son with her, and uh, Charlie's mom was really upset that she and, and her grandson wouldn't go in uh, or come close. It was really a terrible experience, she said. Uh, Daniel in Alhambra says, I'm a 29-year-old hospice worker. Really impossible for my wife and and I to interact with friends. We're constantly interacting with COVID patients. Daniel, I'm sure that's true, but your friends have to understand, particularly in your case, why that would be a very bad idea. And Leanna in Fullerton says, I'm 32. My family's spread all over the country. They really want me to see them. I just can't. And they constantly make me feel really guilty about my decision. Thanks so much for your comments. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Such pleasure to have you with us. Hope everything is going well. We're going to be talking about uh, changes to restaurants here in California, and I particularly would like to hear from those of you that have restaurants. Looking forward to reopening the interior as well as patios. If you got patio dining at your restaurant, and uh, hearing with some of uh, hearing some of the procedures for reopening, whether you feel they're realistic for you. Uh, if you're an employee of a restaurant that's looking to reopen for inside dining as well as patio dining, I, I'd like to hear from you what your concerns are. Do you feel like where you work is going to be able to take your health as well as that of customers? Uh, effectively into account to open up. Joining me is the president and CEO of the California Restaurant Association, which represents thousands of restaurants, Jot Condi. Jot, it's good to have you with us again this morning. Thanks for having me, Larry. Uh, let's talk about the guidelines that are out. Are th- are these um, ones that you feel uh, have effectively taken into account what your association has been lobbying for? Yeah, I, we, we, when you it's a twelve-page document. Um, it's very uh, detailed, voluminous, um, with with one footnote at the bottom that ends with the sentence "Be prepared to change and adjust uh, to changing guidelines." So, at sign of the times. Uh, yeah, we we had submitted to the governor along with the health directors um, and the health officers a document that suggested uh, some. Uh, protocols for uh, safety and um, containing, you know, stopping the spread within a restaurant dining room uh, for employees and, and amongst customers. And largely what the governor has detailed is, is consistent with what we, uh, what we had suggested. Let's uh, just talk about a few of these. Um, so for the dining room, some of the big front of the house changes that restaurants would be looking at is uh, prioritize and potentially expand outdoor seating if that's an option. Reconfigure dining rooms to allow for at least six feet between tables. Uh, also to allow for distance between people who are dining, working, or passing through entrances and exits. Physical barriers or partitions would need to be installed at cash registered, bars, and at host stands. 
Uh, reservations might need to be required to space out the timing of people arriving and departing the restaurant so that there's time to disinfect the areas of the restaurant where people had been uh, sitting. Uh, customers staying in their cars or away from the restaurant while they wait to be seated. Um, ordering in advance in some cases for dine-in eating so that there's less time actually spent sitting in the table. And I wanted to talk with you about that, Jot, because, you know, for particular types of restaurants where it's really about being in the space, the ambiance, the feel of the restaurant, ordering in advance, coming in, having your food served within five minutes, eating and going, it seems in many cases that's going to defeat the purpose of going to that particular restaurant? Yeah, well, certainly the dining experience is going to change for the foreseeable future. And, you know, I think, you know, restaurateurs in uh, dining establishments are entertainers. They're providing a dining experience that uh, customers have um, expected. And um, that those expectations, uh, based on what we're learning from other states that have already opened, are changing. You know, the idea of going into a restaurant and being um, greeted by somebody with a face mask and served uh, and, and have your order taken by somebody with a face mask is, is, has t- you know, the, the idea of that it would make a, a restaurateur recoil. But I think those expectations are changing. And obviously, those are guidelines that we'll have to adhere to based on whatever the health departments ultimately decide region by region. But I think there's going to be an expectation amongst customers that if they see you know, as, as servers, uh, you know, and, and people congregating in a restaurant without, um, you know, protection that, you know, what we've seen in other states is there's been a large social media, uh, you know, blowback. Yeah. Uh, consumers. Yeah. No, very, very good point. Well, um, let let me um, reiterate the importance of people in the restaurant industry taking part in this conversation. It's really essential that I hear from you. If you're a restaurant, whether you're doing takeout and delivery right now or not, but you're looking at reopening at some point when it's safe to do so and with the new guidelines, what sorts of changes is that likely to mean for your restaurant? Do you have the resources to make those changes? Are you going to be able to, at the very least, tread water financially by having fewer patrons come in and eat inside? 866-893-KPCC. What's really going to make this segment sing is if you take part in it and you're in the restaurant industry. It's absolutely vital because there's so many different types of restaurants that are out there, from delis to fast casual to fine dining establishments to places that are largely outdoor. How are you going to space still give a festive air but with distancing? Are are your customers, do you think, going to accept this? Or do you think that there might be some resistance to your customers accepting these restrictions for your particular Restaurant 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, I wonder, too, about um, how restaurants are going to be profitable, Jot, with fewer customers coming in because you know, profit margins are so thin already. If a restaurant's going to have to cut to cu- capacity by half, how do they make a profit? Yeah, there, there. That's the the big question. Uh, I mean, and ultimately, what will drive a lot of that will be uh, customers' willingness to come back. Uh, 
and eat in the restaurant. Uh, but I think, you know, I've, we talk to, I talk to dozens of restaurateurs every day, and they're all trying to figure out how if, let's say, the pattern is consistent with what we've seen in other parts of the country where, let's say, restaurants are operating at, let's say, 30% capacity, how, how do they survive? How do they reduce, you know, their costs? I mean, there's lots of discussions going on with landlords now. Um, there's, you know, uh, redeveloping menus. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, the, the real difficult part for many of these small independent restaurateurs who have received uh, the PPP federal loans that become uh, forgivable loans or grants if the restaurateur can staff up to pre-COVID-19 levels, um, that's a difficult one for restaurateurs that if they need to staff up to pre-COVID-19 levels, yet they only have 30 percent um, of the normal customers coming in, um, you know, that's that's something that I think restaurateurs are trying are, are struggling with now. All right. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Steve in Torrance, what's your restaurant? Uh, I'd rather not say the restaurant. OK, because, that's fine. You know, I don't want my staff to hear. No, I, I understand. We're, we're a local. We're a locally owned, small, independent restaurant. I really don't foresee anything positive happening in the future. I mean, there is a. There's a million things we could talk about right now, but, you know, the bottom line really is, you know, financials of restaurants, specifically full service restaurants, they're all based on seating capacity. Um, having first off having months upon months of no business or little to no business isn't helping the matter. Then to go to 25% isn't going to help. So for me personally, unfortunately, I just don't see anything positive happening. I don't have the, the strength of large management teams that big restaurant groups and large chains have that can take on this mountainous volume of new legislation to absorb it and go through it and to, and to follow everything all the time. It's just going to be too much. So, I mean, I see fast casuals being okay because they're already, you know, you walk into the counter, you order and you go. Yeah. So their business model is based on. I mean, we may go to something like that under a different concept, but for who we are now, there's just, I mean, I've given up, to be honest. Really? At what point do you formally throw in the towel on it? Pardon me? At what point do you formally throw in the towel and say, I can't keep in business? It's going to be at the end of the summer for me, but I know for a fact, I don't personally want to take my kids out to a restaurant with face masks on, not necessarily because I'm afraid of this virus, because quite frankly, I'm really not. That's a whole different discussion. But I think just the fact that I'm not, I don't want that experience. I don't want to go to a restaurant with face masks on. I think a lot of people are going to have that experience. And you're going to see an initial bump when things reopen. Sure, you're ready yeah. to come in. People are going to be happy. But then as soon as that bump's over, only people that are going to survive are the people that can really do the deep discounting and have the money to do the heavy marketing and have the large management teams, et cetera. Well, and, and from the beginning, Steve can somehow figure out to recapture some essence of the experience that brought customers in before. Because if, if it's kind of a halting start, as you say, that enthusiasm, that pent-up demand is only going to last so long. And you have only one chance to make a, a good impression on people coming back to eat inside or on a patio. Steve, I appreciate it very much. 866-893-KPCC. Jot Condi, California Restaurant Association. Your thoughts on what Steve details? I think it's very consistent with what I'm hearing 
from restaurateurs. And really, I, I just noticed the last seven days, um, and again, like I said, I talk to lots of them every day, that um, uh, there's a lot of restaurateurs that have, are just deciding to throw in the towel. Uh, yesterday, uh, our member services team made phone calls to 40 restaurants uh, throughout California. Eight of them said they're closing for good. They just they can't make it work. Um, I think, you know, the, yesterday there was an announcement made by um, uh, the, the L.A. Uh, County Health Department that the stay-at-home orders are likely to be extended uh, up till August. That, I think, changed the, the psychology of a lot of restaurateurs who are looking at spreadsheets trying to figure out can they even survive um, up until then. So I, I think we're at a real critical point now. And, um, you know, every day that passes, we're going to see restaurateurs quietly, uh, you know, pub- not publicly, just decide we're not going to reopen. Yesterday on Take Two, uh, you said a lot, lot of restaurateurs are looking at personal bankruptcy. It It absolutely is the case. And that's the... The tragedy and a lot of people, you know, there's there's multiple tragedies playing out here, just not just the employees, but you have a lot of independent restaurateurs who have signed personal guarantees on whether their loans or their lease agreements and, and those payments are coming due and they're having to file for not just, you know, corporate bankruptcy, but personal bankruptcy because they're afraid of losing their homes. Sharky in Silver Lake, I understand you've got a restaurant in Silver Lake. Um, what is it and how are you doing? Hi, um, I'm good. Um, my wife and I uh, own a small restaurant in Silver Lake called Jewel, J-E-W-E-L. Um, and it's just the two of us running the restaurant. Um, again, similar to the gentleman before me, there's no financial backing, no large management teams behind us. Yeah. So it's really just the two of us trying to figure out which way to pivot um, towards uh and still try to make the business sustainable. So right now we're in the process of grabbing or uh, obtaining some grab-and-go cases and focusing our energy on towards pantry items. Um, We are planning to um, take some tables out indoors and maybe expanding our outdoor seating just to, like, spread it out. How how many uh, people can you seat outside now? Um, Normally it'll be... 25 indoors, 25 outdoors. Okay. So if we bring that down to, let's say, 12 indoors, even if there's a demand for it, which I really don't think in the next three months that there will be a demand or any any sort of full seating. Um, and outdoors, even with 25 seating, again, it's, it's barely anything. Um, At what point do you feel like you're, you're going to have to make a decision, if there is such a point, as to whether you continue in business? Well, that's a really hard question. Um, we were able to receive the PPP, and just being honest with you, um, let's say, for example, that does give us two months yeah. to float. Um, if the economy stays this way, if the shelter in place, let's say, for example, still continues to be uh, in effect uh, until most realistically, let's say July or even further that, um, after two months, we're not sure where we're going. Where we're going? Yeah. Once the PPP money's gone, what's the, once the PPP money's gone, what's going to help us float? Um, we were looking into the beer and wine license. Um, we don't have a beer and wine. Um, there were some articles that came out about expediting as well as lowering the fee for a beer and wine license. Um, but that proposal, from my my understanding, has not been passed yet. Sharky, hold on. Let me ask Jot Condi. Jot, do you have any word about that um, licensing process? 
I don't. It would require the legislation. Um, you know, we we work you know multiple times per week. I'm in contact with ABC, um, and they have been very accommodating. And I think they would probably. Uh, I don't want to, you know, give you know, suggest that they're going to support expanding that and lowering. Uh, the fees for the licenses, but um, I suspect that there will be a lot of support for that in the legislature, but it would require uh, an act of um, our lawmakers. Sharkey, we wish you and your wife the best, and hopefully Jewel will be able to um, survive and and prosper later as uh, things hopefully come back. We appreciate your call. Let's talk next with Chad in Studio City. Chad, I understand you're the general manager of Mr. O's there. Yeah. Yeah, so what what's going on with your restaurant? Uh it's been it's been an interesting time. I I mean, since this whole thing happened, it's it's been a scramble trying to figure out what to do. And so opened up the restaurant to do a limited takeout menu, uh and then I started to expand basically the grocery offering for all of the uh, <clears throat> all of the neighborhood and a lot of uh, our guests that have come through just so that way I can try to support them and help them listening to my wife and how she mentioned numerous times, like, hey, can you get this? Can you get this? Can you get this? We don't have it at the store. So I was able to expand our menu that way, and that's really helped a lot. Good. It's been tough just in the fact that I had to furlough the entire staff and kind of doing it as a one-man band. I've gotten a little assistance from some of the staff volunteering their time. Wow. But, yeah, it's... uh, Did you get PPP money? Yeah, I just received it on Friday. Okay, and so are you going to be ready to go to to reopen? Yes, I'm ready, and I mean, just the fact that we've had to make so many adjustments over the last few years just because of the way that the restaurant industry has gone from food costs to just everything going up in price, and then you have to be careful because you can't price yourself out of the market, and, you know, everybody's price sensitive, but then at the same time, we used to be open for lunch. I'm going to be closed for lunch, but then I'm going to stay open for takeout and the grocery stuff to try to help offset the labor that I'm going to have for the night because I'm unsure. Uh, Just listening to you, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out what the formula is like everybody else in this industry to just try and figure out what's, you know, what's going to enable you to, to stay open, to tread water during this time. And Chad, I appreciate you sharing the experience. We wish uh, the best to you and Mr. Rose in studio city where your general manager, we thank you for that. We're at eight, six, six, eight, nine, three KP, CC. We're talking with restaurant owners, managers, servers, uh, back of the house people. We're talking with those in the restaurant industry about whether your restaurant is going to be able to reopen once the uh, Safer at Home is list, list, lifted and people are able to eat inside or on patios of restaurants. 866-893-5722. Back in one minute. The future of restaurants in Southern California. Our topic, Jot Conti, the president and CEO of the California Restaurant Association, with us. We're talking about 
uh, State of California's protocols for reopening inside dining and patio dining in California. There are a number of -of back-of-the-house changes that restaurants would likely have to make, such as screening employees' temperatures, screening them for symptoms before they begin their shifts, encouraging workers who are sick or exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19 to stay home, face coverings provided, gloves to make sure that employees use them, um... Dishwashers have protective gear for eyes, nose, and mouth so that any splash they're protected from. Uh, Also, uh, employees having time on their shifts to implement cleaning practices and uh, constant disinfecting of tables, chairs, booster seats, high chairs, and booths um, between each customer uh, so that it's constantly cleaned. All of this huge consideration for employees. But, John, I wanted to ask you about uh, encouraging employees to stay home when they've got symptoms uh, because one of the real problems is a lot of restaurant employees don't get sick days, so they're out money if they don't show up for work. Um, is that practice going to change in the industry? It, it could. I mean, there's um, at the federal, state, and local level, a lot of cities have enacted paid sick day policies. So you have um, essentially three levels of government who, um, in most of the metropolitan uh, parts of California have these sick day policies in 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 place. Um, you know, I think um, you know just in, as it relates to you know constant cleaning and disinfecting, hygiene in in uh, in the workplace. These are uh, I think mo- other industries will have a much more difficult time with this than the restaurant industry. It's already in our DNA. Um, we are largely. Uh, you know, restaurants are inspected multiple times per year and work with health departments that are constantly checking in on that. Um, so I think, you know, when it comes to providing uh, a safe uh, environment for our employees and certainly the customers, I think we're, our industry is ready for that challenge. All right. Again, uh, important that we hear from restaurant owners, managers, employees, your thoughts about the potential to reopen under California's new protocols for restaurants once they're able to open. Now, in California, Los Angeles, Orange Counties have not met the other requirements to start phasing in inside dining as well as patio dining, but that day is going to come. Uh, I trust that it will. And is your restaurant going to be able to make it with these procedures, 866-893-KPCC. Mark in the West Adams District of Los Angeles, uh, you own a restaurant. Do you mind sharing the name of it? Hi, Larry. Yeah, I'm the owner, along with my wife, of Open Face Food Shop Very in good. West Adams, which is a, um, a Danish-style uh, uh, Open Face sandwich restaurant. Very good. And you've stayed open? We have. Uh, we made the decision from the very beginning that we were going to try to stay open and not uh, let go of any of our staff. Uh, we've been successful in that, thank goodness. Um, and we reached out to the neighborhood to find out what it was that they needed. Um, and so we, you know, as a small, nimble company, we've tried to um, do that as best we can. We do farmer's market boxes. I spent my morning at the uh, um, farmer's market in Santa Monica. I'll be there again on Sunday. We started doing family meals that people could take home so they could cook with their kids. Uh, and we have the restaurant open every day. And um, 
generally, how are you doing financially? Are, are you are you losing money or are you able to tread water? You know what I tell people, uh, you know, between you and me and the other million people that are um, <laughs> just we, us, <laughs> um, we are taking on water in a controlled fashion. The boat's okay. not getting swamped. But, you know, in an, in an economic environment like this, we have to have reasonable expectations. We want to survive. We want to take care of the neighborhood. They have really responded and they have supported us. And people here need food. So we're going to stay up and we'll stay open as long as we can. Have you restricted your hours as a lot of places have done or kept your hours? Uh, we have, we've kept our hours and we're planning on opening up on weekends because it looks like that's what the neighborhood needs. So, if that's so you're extending hours. Wow. Um, Mark, once people are able to eat inside, but with distance, different seating configurations, um, are, are you going to be able to profitably make those changes? Well, we're in a little bit of a unique situation. We're a converted 1959 era hot dog stand. So we have exterior seating. Ah at a counter, uh, and we have a space next door that will also be outdoors. Um, how that's going to work, you know, we need to wait until the um, till the new rules come down, and, and we'll see if we can do it. If not, maybe we'll start our own delivery service and, and you know, meet people where they are. It's a difficult situation for everybody, and, and we're all just doing our best to figure out how to yeah. whatever the community needs. Mark, we wish you all the best, and it sounds like you're very connected to your West Adams community, and that's wonderful to hear. We we wish you all the best during this challenging time in the restaurant business. Uh, let's go not too far away, just a bit to the south, to Baldwin Hills, where Katara joins us. I understand you have a bakery in Baldwin Hills. Do you mind sharing the name? Sure. Uh, yes. My bakery is called Southern Girl Desserts. And are you in the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza or another mall? Yes, we're actually inside of the plaza. We've just been so blessed to have an exterior door ah. pickup. And we're the only place inside of the mall that has access to our customers right now. So we've been very grateful for that for the last couple of months. So how, how have your sales been compared to pre-COVID-19? Oh, my gosh, they're much lower. (laughs) The sales have definitely decreased. But as um, the days have gone by and the weeks have gone by, uh, the surrounding communities have been very supportive. They're sending messages to their uh, HOA and to their community groups, letting them know that we're open. So we've had um, our best day was Mother's Day. We had a lot of people come out and support us. Um, However, it's still um, not the same. Uh, We don't we're not getting the same foot traffic. We're basically in a very empty parking lot because we're the only um, place open inside of the mall. And that's a huge parking lot. Oh, it's a huge parking lot. <laughs> there are a couple of other restaurants that are um, open around us. Um, so we're basically sharing customers and then we have your loyal customers who come. But um, it has been a challenge um, for sure. And um, do you feel like you're poised that once the mall reopens and you can have people come inside, do you feel like you're going to be able to get back closer to where you were? You know, that's a really good question. Um, we, the hope is that we will. The, the question is, will people come and will people feel comfortable coming back inside with large groups? 
um, we, we're kind of going off of this thing like it's going to be our new normal. So we're trying to figure out, like some of the other callers mentioned, how to just navigate through this time and just adjust. So we're limiting our menu, of course, like many people. We're just trying to figure out how to just, if this is going to be the normal for the next couple of months, how to make it as normal as possible for our customers. And what about staffing? Have you been able to keep your staff? We haven't. Um, we've, we've had a few staff stay on board, mainly our baking staff. But as far as our front of the house staff, our cashiers, we haven't been able to keep none of any of them except for one. And so my business partner, Shiniji, and I have basically been working every single day um, so that we can keep the doors open um, for, so it's basically like a two-lady show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Running over here. It's, it's exhausting when you, you're used to having a staff, and, but you're the owners and you also have to work and, and trying to manage all of the other things that you have to manage as a business. It's been very difficult. I can't imagine how exhausting it must be, Katara. Also, how do people know that you're still open, given that the mall is closed? How have you connected with people who live in the area? Well, social media has definitely been our saving grace. That's how we're keeping uh, people up to date with what we have going on. Uh, we're doing our best to reach out to the surrounding communities, their HOAs and other community groups, and say, hello, we're open. And then the mall is also has a social media page, and they're letting people know that we're open as well. I think it's been a lot of word of mouth. Because the mall is closed and a lot of the entrances are blocked, people just assume that we're not here. And I think as time goes by, people will maybe, you know, get used to knowing that we are here. Very good. And hopefully word of mouth. Katara, thank you so much. We wish you and your partner in your bakery all the best going forward. Really appreciate your taking part in the conversation. I have another uh, listener comment. Cheryl in Long Beach uh, owns uh, a couple of restaurants in the Long Beach area, one of which is open for takeout and says, we're very reluctant to go back to full service. We're just operating to try and pay off our vendors at this point. That's Cheryl in Long Beach. Let me go back to Josh Conti, the president of the California Restaurant Association. We've heard a wide range of stories from uh, restaurant owners, but the similar theme that I, I assume you hear, Jot, from your members is they're just trying to hang on um, as they sail into the unknown here. Yeah. I mean, I think the theme here is that, I, that I'm sensing from where that Cheryl or Mark or Steve is that I think they are true entrepreneurs and i think the most restaurant owners are uh, flexible and a creative lot and you're hearing uh, the you know great stories about them just trying to hang on and figuring out how to make it work uh, and let's hope that that represents the vast majority of the independent restaurants who are essentially the heart and soul of our community this is uh, an example of some of the best of Southern California, the people that we've heard from. And you hear the commitment to their employees, to their businesses, connecting with their communities to try and serve them while while staying financially viable. Jod, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Larry. Jod Gandhi, the president and CEO of the California Restaurant Association, which advocates for those in this massive industry here in California, which is struggling so much right now. You can share your comments uh, if you have a restaurant uh, on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. 
Coming up on Air Talk, we're going to take a look at some of the ways colleges and universities are watching their students take online tests, the proctoring which some think is too highly invasive. And we'll talk with KPECC politics reporter Libby Dankman about that important 25th congressional district race in northern Los Angeles County. Yesterday was election day in that special race. We'll continue in just 90 seconds. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. This is our second segment of the day devoted to higher education. We began the program an hour and a half ago with the chancellor of the California State University System, Timothy White, talking about their decision to start the next uh, academic year uh, with largely online courses in the CSU system. Uh, Now we're going to turn our attention to online exams and how colleges are proctoring those exams even as students are taking them in their bedroom. Joining us is Sean Hubler, New York Times California correspondent. Her latest story is Keeping Online Testing Honest, an Orwellian Overreach. Sean, it's good to have you with us. Hi, Larry. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Well, let's talk about some of the different technology available, some of which I, I didn't realize has been available for many years now to um, uh, sort of uh, tech proctor these exams. It's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's really come a long, it's come a long way. I mean, online online instruction isn't a new thing. And some of these proctoring companies have been around for, you know, decades uh, and had uh, come online early on when back when, 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 when people took an online course on their computer, they were taking it at a desktop uh, with one screen in front of them. And um, the the danger uh, if you wanted to cheat was, was that the student might, click on to a different tab or go on or click away from the, from the test and look something up on Google. Um, since then, over the decades, tech has advanced and so has the, the, the mechanism, the, the ingenuity for cheating. And, and so has, um, and so have these, have these uh, proctoring companies. And so it used to be that, for example, at the beginning, there were companies that would lock the browser uh, of a student who was taking a test so that they couldn't click away while they were taking the test. It's before everybody had smartphones, right? <laughs> exactly, before everybody had smartphones. Now there are uh, uh, web, now there are companies that will, um, that will hire proctors in the Philippines or in India to sit with a student via webcam and watch the student take the exam. Um, there are uh, companies that will um, use a combination of approaches, lock the browser, and then prior to taking the test, have the student use a webcam, pick up their laptop, and show their workspace to make sure that there are no cheat sheets lying around. There are other companies that have even used, uh, implemented sort of um, AI um, that, that will use artificial intelligence to um, for example, uh, uh, gauge a student's head movement. So if a student's head sort of moves too far out of the center of the computer screen, um, say to crane their neck to look at a cheat sheet, um, or if uh, a strange noise happens in the background, such as maybe somebody trying to whisper an answer in their ear, 
the computer will pick that pick up on that and that will be flagged and sent to the university to the faculty member so they can uh, gauge any uh, suspicious activity that the student might have uh, you know engaged in psychologically this just seems so different Sean from you know proctoring a room full of students to take a test where you feel like you're in it with everybody else no one's sort of looking specifically at you but all of these you know whether it's someone watching you on a webcam um, thousands of miles away or AI that determines whether your head is moving in a way that could show cheating it that that's so personal each of these that's one of the complaints about it actually and it's and it's become a much louder complaint now that um, students are taking these tests at home before the pandemic a lot of the uh, remote testing that happened with students if it wasn't happening at an institution that was already all online already, um, and in some many schools do part do a hybrid do hybrid classes, and they'll offer some online testing. But the students would go to a room with a lot of cubicles in it, and take the test there, and the proctor or the proctoring technology or service would be looking at them in an, in a um, you know kind of an anonymous cubicle while they took this test. Um, now these tests, these laptops are in a student's room, in their home, in their, you know, uh, in their bedroom, in their, at their kitchen table, um, sometimes with ro- other roommates in the house. Uh, their dog is barking. Their boyfriend's on the couch playing a video game. Yeah. You know, there's stuff in the background. Their kids are running around if they have children. Um, it's much more personal and much more invasive um, to this, and, and that's one of that's one of the big complaints. Um, you know that, and just the the sense that um, also for some students that that these proctors um, carry with them a tacit message, which is we we expect you're going to cheat, so you're probably not honest and we, you can't be trusted. And, and that's offensive to some people, too. Sean Hubler with us from The New York Times, where she's California correspondent. We're talking about online testing and the different ways colleges and universities proctor those exams. If you're a college student uh, or maybe even a high school student who is taking exams uh, with proctoring involved, I'd like to hear what you think about it, whether you think the technology is effective, first of all, and secondly, does it bother you that this kind of proctoring is taking place? 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, my son Desmond is in his freshman year uh, of college, and with his classes, uh, they pretty much moved away from uh, online examinations, and instead, it's project and paper-based. He said just since he got home when school broke, he will have written about 15,000 words worth of papers uh, to close out this semester instead of taking online tests. So I don't know whether proctoring of tests is better or, or, or fortunately he enjoys writing. So uh, uh, Also with us is Julie Uranus, who's vice president for online and strategic initiatives at University Professor. Professional and Continuing Education Association. She was the director for online and professional development at Western Kentucky University. Julie, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Larry. To elaborate a little bit more on on how some of this tech works, particularly the AI stuff, 
how do they have any sort of accuracy just determining head movements or or, or things like that to try and uh, flag someone cheating? Sure. Well, I by no means want to represent myself as an AI expert, but uh, really it's relying on, these companies are relying on AI engines and technologies just like we do in so many other areas of our lives. Like when our faces are identified when we go through the clear lane um, at an airport um, or anything else that we do. In fact, my new Subaru actually has um, some of this technology and knows that I'm driving it, uh, which <laughs> is a, a little bit strange. Uh, we call that car kit now. <laughs> um, and um, so the engines that drive this are really um, very sophisticated and based on some assumptions that if a head nod, you know, if there's a nod or a significant amount of time uh, where the a student's eyes are diverted, that that potentially can be a situation where there may be some cheating involved. But typically what these companies do is that they actually flag that behavior and then send it over for some type of a review process by a human. And if it's deemed suspicious, then it gets escalated to a faculty member or someone at the university or college. All right. And uh, do some professors choose not to use this technology at all? They just, you know, they they find it uncomfortable and, and just trust their students to be honest when they take the tests? Certainly. Um, there are many, many faculty that don't see the need for online proctoring. And it's really indicative of their nature or their approach to the assessment of learning in their course. Some, like in your son's situation, you know, Desmond's faculty um, have decided that, you know, they want to conduct their um, assessment through, you know, project-based learning and uh, projects and papers. Um, not all faculty um, have high-stakes exams in their courses, but those that do um, or those that haven't been able to transition away from those for a variety of reasons, um, you know, I think Sean's comment earlier in that there, you know, it feels as though this online proctoring, um, that there's the assumption of cheating. Whereas in a room, it's the exact, you know, in a classroom, it's the exact same behavior. It's that it just doesn't feel perhaps as big brothery as yeah, yeah. Um, online proctoring does. It's just not as personal in, in, in some way. We're talking with Julie Uranus, Vice President for Online and Strategic Initiatives at the University Professional and Continuing Education Association. Joe in Fountain Valley says, I'm doing my Coastline Community College work online, and I noticed they got rid of the camera proctor a few exams ago. I thought it was invasive. My guess is they got rid of it because students uh, expressed unhappiness with it. That's Joe in Fountain Valley. If you're a, a student who is taking exams for many schools, this is finals week. And if you're doing your finals online, uh, I'd be interested in hearing what you think of proctoring if it's used as you're doing your exam on your laptop. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, with us, you see CLA student Daniel Farzaneku. Uh, I understand you're a member of the class of 2021. So, uh, Daniel, uh, you were mentioned in the New York Times story that Sean wrote. Uh, share with us your feelings about online proctoring. Uh, well, I think online proctoring is, uh, as 
been said a bunch of times before. It's, it's extremely invasive. Um, I think there's a distinctive difference between being in a classroom versus being recorded in your own home. One of them, you're being voluntarily, uh, you're voluntarily going into the classroom. This is an understanding made, you know, for since the beginning of education, and you know, it's an accepted fact for students that you're going to have to go into a classroom. Uh, but when an institution decides to expand its surveillance of students uh, on the basis that we're in a pandemic and offers absolutely no evidence whatsoever that doing so is going to improve equity, prevent cheating, or improve learning outcomes, I think it's a big problem. Um, and and But do you grant that there are students who would attempt to uh, use, you know, uh, sources that they shouldn't when they take the exam? and Or do you think that students are, are close to universally honest? I am not going to comment on that. <laughs> not a student is going to cheat. What I will say is uh, when you put a student inside of a situation where if they don't cooperate, they're going to fail, and you assume they're going to be doing something wrong, they have a term for that. It's called entrapment. Now, uh, Julie I, I, um, said that they use artificial intelligence and they flag inappropriate behavior, um, I'll say this, integrating a feature does not assume it's an efficient or working product, okay? It's fancy to integrate artificial intelligence because it sounds good to your investors and it sounds good to the people that are buying it, but just because you integrate a feature does not mean it works, okay? She said very simply that it's based on assumptions. That's her quote, right? And she mentions that it's very, very similar to clear when you go through an airport and they scan your face, and I'll say yeah, but but the question would be, Daniel, you know, if if colleges feel like the AI isn't flagging cheating behavior and it's too unreliable, because as you know, there's there's certainly plenty of opportunity for that to harm relations between professors and students. If they don't feel like it's accurate, wouldn't they just stop using it? Well, I will say this: I'd say that integrating software like Respondus and uh, whatever other software might be out there is a sign that there is declining rapport between students and professors. People don't trust each other, and that is a real problem. Because when you go to college, I was advertised that I'd be treated like an adult. But it seems like every single time there's a glitch on my computer, I'm assumed to be, you know, doing this, uh, I'm assumed to have malicious intentions. I think that's a hostile environment for students and teachers, and I don't think it's conducive to a good education. All right. Daniel, I really appreciate you sharing your experience. Uh, he's a UCLA student, a history major, uh, Daniel Farzaneku, joining us on AirTalk. Uh, Julie Uranus, I, I know you've got to go, but um, this obviously is giving a much larger scale test of these proctoring technologies, given uh, that all college students are, are home during this point. Do you think it's it's going to have an effect, just this being used much more widely? Well, you know, um, unfortunately, we've been put in kind of unprecedented, you know, an impre- unprecedented situation. And universities and colleges had to move swiftly to try and adapt to this new environment. You know, I, I would respond and say that in terms of, of, you know, noting that perhaps these these assumptions and biases that are, you know, in place when it comes to online proctoring, you're right. It's very it's it's very possible that universities will, you know, perhaps even abandon some of these and consider the nature of assessment. You know, I think we saw um, 
I think it was Berkeley perhaps that said, you know, that came out with a statement saying that they would no longer have online proctoring simply because for students that may have disabilities or that were non-neurotypical, um, these engines and these um, algorithms don't work. And the, uh, you know, the, the checks that are in place and the assumptions with proctoring don't apply all the time. And so I think as we take a step back and we have a little bit more time to reflect on what we've experienced in the past semester, that going forward, universities will be looking closely at the nature of assessments on campus, how those are executed when you have, you know, need nimble and yeah. responsive um, uh, situations when it when it comes to this uh, this pandemic. Julie Uranus, thank you so much. Sean Hoopler, New York Times, thank you for being with us as well and talking about some of these measures for proctoring online exams. Yoffin, the city of Orange, says, um, I think it's important to say how much cheating is really going on. I have two sons in college, and my husband's a college professor. They tell so many stories of different strategies students have come up with for cheating. They have to be proctored. It's just not fair to the kids who are actually studying to not proctor online exams. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. We have breaking news that for the first time in its history, the Hollywood Bowl's entire 2020 season has been canceled because of COVID-19. Tomorrow on Air Talk, we'll hear from you. Your thoughts about the 2020 Hollywood Bowl season going away. We'll also talk about the huge financial impact on the Los Angeles Philharmonic Organization as the Hollywood Bowl is its cash cow, enabling all of their programs at Walt Disney Concert Hall in the community, as well as the summer concert season at the Bowl. Again, breaking news, the Hollywood Bowl for the first time in its history, canceling the 2020 season of concerts. We'll be back in one minute on Air Talk. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Joining me now, KPCC Politics reporter Libby Dankman as we update you on the 25th Congressional District race in North Los Angeles County, small portion of Ventura County uh, included as well, where Republicans trying to take back the seat that had flipped Democratic. Libby, what do we have as the uh, the count of the votes at this point? Well, the last update came overnight, Larry, from L.A. County. And at this point, Mike Garcia, the former Navy fighter pilot and Republican, leads Assembly member and Democrat Christy Smith by about 17,000 votes or 12 percent of the vote. Uh, he There have been about 144,000 votes processed. And at this point, it is a very steep lead for Garcia and, uh, you know, folks are questioning whether Christy Smith has enough runway, depending on the number of outstanding ballots, to make up that kind of a deficit. Now, often Democrats um, will close that gap with the with the later votes. They tend to trend Democratic, don't they, Libby? They do. And that's the expectation here. However, if there are enough outstanding ballots to meet or you know, uh, marginally exceed the March primary, which was about 161,000 votes cast. 
in order to uh, overtake Garcia, the math shows that Christie would have to uh, have a uh, something like a 95% uh, uh, ballot return wow. rate going in her favor. However, if the participation rate for this special election, which did have a lot of excitement behind it, yeah. exceeds that of the March primary, she might be able to do it. But uh, Garcia's camp says the math is not there, and they have said he is going to be going to work in Congress. This is the seat, by the way, that Katie Hill had flipped for Democrats. She resigned, and so this election yesterday for the unexpired remainder of the term this year, then the two candidates will go back at it in November, where typically in a general election, Democrats have an advantage. Uh, So at that point, uh, even if Garcia holds on and wins the seat for the rest of the unexpired term, he's going to have to hold on, perhaps uh, a tougher test coming up in November from Christy Smith. Libby, thank you so much. Appreciate your joining us. KPCC politics reporter Libby Dankman. Stay tuned. Governor Gavin Newsom's news conference is next.